What, you want me to teach you something? You want to learn something? All right, here's a useful lesson for you. Give up. Just quit. Because in this life, you can't win. Yeah, you can try. But in the end, you're just going to lose big time because the world is run by the man. Who? The man. Oh, you don't know the man? Oh, well, he's everywhere. In the White House, down the hall, Miss Mullins. She's the man. And the man ruined the ozone. And he's burning down the Amazon, okay? And there used to be a way to stick it to the man. It was called rock and roll. Welcome, one and all, to the world's first Nick's nonfiction band world tour. Every April, we are going around the world with one of the biggest rock bands the earth has ever seen. And this April, the first ever, is going to be with Disney's The Wiggles. April Fool's bitch, we got Paul Stanley, his book, Face the Music, Falling Around Kiss. Is there any other band ever that has their own army? Kiss Army out there, tuning in. I will be doing justice for Paul Stanley, Stanley Eisen's work here, and the entire journey we are taking with the band of Kiss. This has never happened before. Maybe to the Bagel Boss guy, or Charlie Bit My Finger, being a household name from nothing within four years. Paul Stanley was driving people in a cab to Madison Square Garden, and within half a decade, he is selling out the garden for an entire weekend. This is a month of creating an aura. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, are just, one of them are half deaf, two Jewish kids from New York who are looking for their ticket out. Nobody is bored in seven inch heels or with a nine inch tongue spitting out fire. These guys grew into it. It is notable for those who got to live through Kiss Hysteria in the early 70s. They were not known as the most musically diverse or even had a great vocabulary to jam during a live show. Kiss was not seen as the musical goddesses. You were going up against Led Zeppelin at the time. Kiss is a motherfucking attitude, baby. They knew how to sell themselves. To this day, there are still Kiss conventions that travel around the world. Does any band have that? Does any other band have the merch, Christmas ornaments that Kiss has, or even an animated movie about a goddamn band? Another thing that Paul Stanley takes very big pride in is being a hard rock band with literally a character called the Demon as part of the band, but every single song they have composed has a positive message. Lick it up. Positive. Shout it out loud, rock and roll all night, Detroit Rock City, Beth. These are positive songs. It was a truly inspiring read from me from beginning to end. Not going to have an about the author this month. The whole book is about the author from Paul Stanley's perspective. So a little bit about the band for those of you who don't know. Paul Stanley, the star child, is followed by Gene Simmons, original name Kime Weitz. Yes, I was not lying about that being Jewish. He is the demon on stage. You always got to have a heel. Then, with an eye for talent, they found the shredder of the strings, Ace Freely. He shredded whiskey bottles, you will see, as much as he was shredding the guitar. He called himself the spaceman for his inability to fit in with humans. <laughs> and then fourth is Peter Chris. He went by the Catman right behind the drums, calling himself that for the nine lives it seemed like he has had. Later on, through uh, chapter four through six about, we're going to get into Eric Singer and Tommy Thayer, who take over for the degenerates of the band. 
But the original four members, few people know this, are the number one gold record award-winning group of all time. They have 30 gold albums. You're going to notice as we go through the show, the way Kiss was able to stay relevant. Their manager, Bob, also managed Van Halen, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue. But Kiss came first. They were the formula of how to stay relevant, how to keep making money and do your forever tour. So you can keep making money until you're strumming the guitar on a stretcher. And on top of that, Kiss also has 14 platinum albums. So you really can't bash too much about their musical level when you see how many awards they're getting as well. They cleaned house. <laughs> and in 2014, all four original members were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Our first two chapters are going to be a little bit longer because that consists of that four-year blow-up period, them going from absolutely nothing to on the road a different city of the world every single weekend. And then the later four are going to be how they dealt with the fallout of fame. How about we get into this damn thing? <laughs> Part one... No place for hiding, baby. No place to run. Again, we take the journey from the lead man of the band, Paul Stanley's perspective. You recognize him better with a black star around his eye and some red lipstick. <coughs> Paul was always a different kid, as you would expect. His concept of home was always flimsy. He spent the entire first part giving different definitions of what home is. The best definition he came up with was where most people take refuge throughout the day. Different take than a white suburban house mom who does not consider a house a home until it says live, laugh, love on three separate walls. Paul goes on saying, my first home was anything but this. I did not feel safe and refugeed in there. Shout to the name of the chapter, No Place for Hiding, Not Even Your Own House. He grew up on West 211th Street in Manhattan around the age of 1952. He was born half-deaf. The name of the disease is microtia. Most people who are born with this avoid social situations. Because I grew up with one of my... <laughs> this kid is half-deaf. Literally every single time we would drive in the car together, it says right ear. I would drive, or he would be staring left, not looking at the road so I could hear him. Like, most people with this disease just totally check out. Paul Stanley is saying, I'm going to be a rock star even though I'm half-deaf. Paul was always complaining to his parents in his place of ref refuge, his home. Like, yo, I I'm pretty sure... This isn't right. I'm pretty sure I can only hear half of what's happening on the entire world. That messes up with the stereo. You can't, you literally can't even hear music how you're supposed to hear it. But his parents' mentality was always, if you ignore it, it'll go away. In kindergarten, he was writing about someone spat in Paul's face, and his mom was going, don't come crying to me. What I cannot spit in a five-year-old's face. You are going to have to deal with this. The next day on the playground, the kid was calling Paul a one-eared monster, so he's chasing him around, and then he finally tackled the bully, and Paul saw his opportunity where he could have punched this kid's nose inside out, but the kid was scared, so instead of beating him, Paul said, why do you do this? And the kid was like, he snapped out of bully mode. The kid on the ground was not ready to have a confrontation. He wanted the bullying. He thought the bullying was going to go on uninfringed forever. And so a little personal lesson there about his mom told him just ignore it. He took matters into his own hands and the bullying stopped. But you get a call from the principal's office. Your kid tackled somebody today. 
They they want drama. They're not there to play the judicial system. And so Stanley's mom and dad were like, if you do not get this anger under control, you are going to have to go to a psychologist. <laughs> These My parents did the same thing. You are manipulatively demonizing a psychiatrist. You're using a doctor as a punishment. This is how people grow up afraid of the doctor and shit. Unfortunately, with no one to talk to, on top of that, Paul Stanley's dad was an alcoholic. Paul knew this wasn't his family when he gets to the debaucherous levels. The alcoholism was a real window into the parents' marriage, too. He was able to see that it was all based on dependency. Who would stay with an alcoholic man unless you just needed your rent to be paid? He saw that was why his parents were together. Last month, The Feminine Mystique, we learned how two people... If two people are in love with their own resources, they have a happier marriage. Whereas when people are dependent on each other for resources, it's a much worse situation. The number one reason couples fight is because of money. And Stanley's point here is how kids really don't have to be told when something isn't right in the household. They will pick up on it through the underlying alcoholism or obesity in the family. You can sense when something's not up. And Paul would even see his parents would go days without talking to each other. So a very, very independent kid, very observant as well. The one thing Stanley said he was thankful for his parents was their taste of music. He would listen to a bunch of concertos. They were having Mozart on all the time. And in his room, he smuggled in a radio so he could listen to WQXR on the weekends. His grandma took him to buy his first record. Stanley spends a lot of time in record stores throughout his life. Early favorites were Dick Clark and the American Bandstand, and then DJ Alan Freed had a rock and roll hour, who Stanley said he would never miss. He discovered he had the itch, whatever you want to call it, whenever his Jewish immigrant relatives would come to visit. He was always putting on little plays, singing a rock and roll song. He saw DJ Alan Freed play on the show, and that's when he said from a young age he felt the most alive. At Eight years old, they moved off of 211th Street up there and made it over to Queens. Just a classic suburb. The worst part for Paul was that there were no record shops, and it had a really fuzzy reception to WQXR. And he mentioned it in the book, you definitely lose that New York City hustle bustle. You get like a straight shot of adrenaline, I could imagine, when you step outside of your apartment onto a sidewalk that has a hundred people on it little foreshadowing later to I think it's an Ace Freely single I don't know why back in the New York groove the whole song is about getting back <laughs> I wonder what it's about about getting back into the New York ass groove out in the Queens Paul Stanley took his first hike at eight years old his first time in nature <laughs> and he got lost from his mom and he realized being half deaf in the middle of the woods he's like Holy shit, this really does put me at a human disadvantage. In nature, Paul Stanley might not have made it too far. Big old bobcat would have eaten him up. Same time at his new school, he was able to realize the girls were not flocking his way. He did not have the looks. Paul went as far to ask his dad if he was good looking. And his dad said back to him, You're not bad looking. <laughs> Dude was brutally honest, father. So without any looks... Paul hedges his bets, and he joined the local Hebrew school's choir. How he first realized that his voice was a little unique. He's the singer. 
Paul did have an older sister. She wasn't that involved with the family. She was always like dealing with drug dealers, bad people in the East Village, crashing in apartments, making it home maybe one night a week. So his parents were constantly concerned about his sister. Paul was just flying under the radar. And he was getting very bad grades because he was able to get away with it. That wasn't his parents' number one concern. He completely lost interest in school by middle school, mostly because half the time he could not hear what anybody was saying. Kids half deaf. Teachers do not like to hear. Can I have special seating? I have a physical ailment. No, you are subservient to me in my classroom. With the bad grades, his parents didn't look any further into it. They just thought he was a failure. At like 12 years old, Paul's like, wow, this is great. My parents think I'm a failure. He starts losing sleep and becomes hypochondriacal. Thinks everything is killing him. That's like the opposite disease a 12-year-old has. They all think they're invisible. Paul Stanley thinks he's going to die around every quarter at 12. (laughs) Big saving grace for him at Paul's 12th birthday. His dad got him a transistor radio, which literally felt like a lifeline. He was just stealing radio signals from the sky trying to entertain himself and he was able to see the world through a broadcaster's lens now at the same time with his new broadcaster vision he's looking at things through he started watching the ed sullivan show and his eye wasn't on ed sullivan it was in the background on the bass player and he's going i'm buying a bass guitar i've never played guitar or even written a song but i can do that and look at him he started taking steps in the right direction Paul's 13th birthday, he got an electric guitar, and he was profusely excited. He showed the most affection for his parents he said he ever had. He told them it meant the world to him. Now with access to the Ed Sullivan Show and the guitar, he sees the Beatles. He starts growing his hair out long. He buys his own amplifiers and compressors. Even if it is some used Japanese guitar with nylon strings that his parents got for him, He was like, this is still the best present I've ever gotten. It's a tool. It's not just a present. That's what any woman out there, you got Father's Day coming up or something. Just get your man a tool. That's what we're obsessed with. If it has a function, it's not a bad gift. And so now with his guitar, Paul has more confidence than ever. He meets up with a couple kids from Matt and Harold from the Glee Club at his Hebrew school he's been going to, and they start jamming. Paul would sing at first because he wasn't a, he wasn't good enough at guitar yet and just jam tambourine. He had the hot chick position in the back. But he said within the first two years of having his guitar by 15, he surpassed everybody in his grade. That's the mentality of a rock star is not having magic fingers. And his competitive attitude came out through his poverty he was thinking these kids they go home to their mansions at the end of the night with all their fancy equipment i have to lug my amplifiers back to my parents apartment this is going to be the rest of my life if i don't make it big in this from the age of 14 he saw it was an all or nothing pursuit this is not a hobby playing music for paul In his junior and senior years of high school, he's taking the subway downtown, discovering all types of record stores in Manhattan, jamming on top-level guitars in stores until the owners asks him to leave. And then the first guitar Paul bought for himself, first one, he had a bit of a guitar-buying addiction throughout his life. The first one was a two-pickup Shadowcaster by Vox. That's big, though. At this time, all the other 15-year-olds are buying Mustangs with their Burger Shack money. He's reinvesting in his hobby. And so now he's got that pretty guitar sitting in his room at home. Paul starts skipping school even more. 
because he's saying, what is this school doing for me? I know my ticket out is now just sitting in my room. I got to go work on it. And Paul starts writing songs for the first time as well. And so his parents are nice and salty about his attendance record, and they see the trend that it's going in. And at 15, his dad told him, all right, buddy, Paul, if you get a girl pregnant at this point, it's on you. I'm not taking on a pseudo family. You're out of the house if you get someone pregnant. He was still a virgin at this point, so (laughs) Paul's hypochondriacal mind is just double-dosed with anxiety now. And he said when he felt extra alone, extra secluded on days like that, he would put on Jimi Hendrix full blast two speakers on each side of his head, even though he only has one ear, because at full volume he could hear the bone conduction. He would hear the vibrations from the music in his cochlea, those three tiniest bones in the body in your ear, and he was able to learn music through vibrations a little bit. That's an adaptive mind. In his room now, he's going, I'm about to get kicked out onto the streets in any moment. He's working on his windmills and his power slides in front of the mirror. Paul blows out his hair for the first time. And his parents, of course, negged him before he left the house. You look like a cotton ball. You think girls like that? Thanks, Mom. It's not a phase. I'm going to be the biggest rock star ever. Thanks for making fun of me. (laughs) And Paul's mentality was, instead of going to school as a freak, I'm going to put myself through the school of freaks. You got to go through the awkward. You can never go around the awkward. So he's just getting used to looking like the clown, the demonistic face-painted psycho while he's at school. Paul saw other kids were drawing and just starting to rebel in general in high school. And he's like, I'm going to do it better. Just like he saw the guitars on the Ed Sullivan show. He's like, I can do this better than anyone. And that's exactly what he was doing with the blowout hair, with his own style. And this kid, Grace Slick, from his grade, that was his, I guess, stage name he was using. If not, that's just the coolest Italian in Queens ever, Grace Slick. He took notice to Paul and asked him to join their band. It was called Great Society, and Paul took lead vocals. They were doing cover bands, Gershwin's Summertime. At the time, club gigs were basically only paying for cover bands, so they were thinking this was going to be our lane. And so this is a good time. Paul is in Great Society, his first band. And what comes with bands? Groupies. This girl, Victoria, is a curvy blonde, and she asked Paul to the Fillmore East. This was his first live music show. There with Victoria, he smoked his first joint, and he was like, I kind of just feel out of it, but this is the coolest musical experience of my life, and I know I have to be the one on stage. (laughs) Paul, who is one of the most notorious bachelors on planet Earth, his first hookup here with Victoria, he got paranoid around the parents and blew it. <laughs> Her dad was all like, oh, dude, those red eyes come with the leather pants. Imagine that the first time you're high. You already know how paranoid you are the first time that you ever get high. And then you're meeting the first girl you are going to be with's dad. Super paranoia. <laughs> Just some more adversity for Paul. And for the first time in his life, Paul, he's getting out of the house more hearing even less in class seeing there's a whole world out there beyond academia he hates school even more he uh included a screenshot in the book it was in his class ranking there were 587 people in his graduating class that is like double the size of a lot of high schools he was 552nd 
lowest of the lowest percentiles. When he saw this number, it was a little bit before graduation, his sleep anxiety picked back up. And what added to that anxiety was at the same exact time, Paul's dad confessed to him about cheating on his mom. No respect, man. If you cheat on someone, that is your cross to bear. You have to take that shit to the grave. You, This other person did nothing. Don't put your guilt on other people. Deal with it. And you can see even deeper here how bad of discretion Paul's dad had throughout his life. He's entrusting his 17-year-old son with his infidelity. I'm sure that made his son's anxiety a lot more at rest. And Paul actually said to him, he knew in the moment, this is not right. I don't think there's a certain age you get past where you can ask your kids for absolution. Please go see a priest. So a lot more stress than the normal 17-year-old here. But the man of initiative that Paul is, he went and got his first psychiatrist. He did have his own opinions. He said the psychiatrist stone-faced him. <clears throat> but this guy did give him the basic therapist advice, which up to this point he hadn't heard. So this was very valuable. Therapist let the 17-year-old kid know. I don't know why they just don't do this one day in school. How about fucking take the Pledge of Allegiance out one day and give people a mantra or a truthful quote? <laughs> Therapist, he changed Paul's world with this. He was going, yeah, the world is a fucking crazy place, and I bet you don't realize it now, but every single other person feels like you. It's just that people cope in different ways. Your dad was coping through alcoholism and apparently cheating on his wife as well, your mom. He told Paul, some people will cope through TV, through food, through pharmaceuticals and drugs, or alcohol. He sees that later in his life, a little bit of foreshadowing. Some people cope with comedy or music. And Paul was going, oh wait, I can make what I love, music, my coping mechanism? Perfect. So not only did this psychiatrist kind of give him the go-ahead for his dream, he fashioned that go-ahead himself, he let the kid know everybody else is a discomfortable bag of mush floating through this reality. We just cope different ways. I gotta kind of spoil it up front to make this book make sense. One of the reasons Paul Stanley does not go off the rails when the band gains extreme success is because the first thing he does is get a psychiatrist he knew this from his youth that i'm not going to turn to the drugs the women or the money i'm gonna <laughs> find someone to talk to about this insane experience so paul he like had a paradigm shift at 17 in high school he basically forfeited a social life because he's saying music is going to be my addiction that's how, how i'm going to cope with this incarnation and he made it work <laughs> And having music and a dream, that's already 50% more than most people have. A lot of people do not even have a dream or have given up on their dream. He also took his therapist's words into practice, seeing that most people around him are miserable. So Paul's going, let me entertain them. Quick little knowledge bomb, I'll throw some conspiracy action in the show. You know what entertainment is? Meant the root word means mind. Entertain means to hold. Entertainment, to hold the mind. Are you not entertained? Government, let's think this one out. Meant, mind, govern, means to control. Government, to control the mind. Now here, 17, in school, with the forbidden knowledge, Paul, for the first time, says out loud his truth. 
Paul was nodding off in the back of class, half deaf to a mumbling teacher up front, so he starts to put his hair down. All you could see from the front is a perfectly quaffed do. And his teacher was like, slams on the desk, Paul Stanley, why do you not care about geopolitics in the 1400s? For the first time, says out loud, because I want to be a rock star. Paul said what every single young man in the class was thinking. He's just putting the work in. And he knew when he said it, he's like, um, that was an embarrassing mistake. Looks like I'm going to have to go through with it. (laughs) But writing about it in his book here, it was obviously a meaningful moment to admit he has a dream. He starts calling publishing companies trying to get a record deal with obviously zero offers at the time, but he's taking shots. He realized hanging around with a lot of the high schoolers, all the Hebrew kids that just eating sandwiches and smoking weed after class isn't helping the goal. There were well, there was this older couple, Sandy and Paul, who he met through his weed circles, and he only clung to cannabis because he found that the socialization, the weed circle, baby, that's the real outlet, the socialization. Just like having a beer and having a chat, the talking is the real outlet. And you confuse it with your elixir that is in front of you. When someone wants to, when everyone's getting packed up to go, there's always one guy, oh, one more drink, please, one more round. Again, again, again. Maybe this guy's an alcoholic, but he probably is more so begging for the company. Same thing as the weed circles Paul found out in high school. Also, he said that he hooked up with a couple people's wives in the weed circles. Lover's triangle. That is how you get your head bashed in. (laughs) I've had buddies that have cucked men. They say it's one of the scariest experiences ever, having a hard penis with another man just staring at you. And so Paul was getting a a little bit lost there already in the women, and he took a couple steps back from it, took a couple steps back from everybody's husband too, and was seeing, okay, this sex drive is a thing that I can use as well to get me to my goals. And then in 1969, out of high school, he saw Led Zeppelin in Queens. Said it was another transcendental experience. Straight up blew his mind, and he saw how to put on a show. Also, of course, mentioned Led Zeppelin, a band with like some of the best chemistry and can flow between musical vocabularies of all time. He saw that connection that's between each band member is extremely important. So we got back together with some of the Hasidic school kids to see if that band had any chemistry and immediately realized it wasn't the fit. So here he is, out of high school, no band, still made zero pennies from music. So Stanley moves on to his last resort, which is installing phones in a self-bought van. Things are looking dim, so he's sending out more Hail Marys, calling more guys from record labels, just trying to get some sort of a lead. And from a stroke of luck, one of the record labels were able to get him in touch with a guy who was doing the same exact thing as he was, just calling around asking for a deal. And record label is like, can you stop calling us? Here's a number of a kid. His name is Gene Klein. Call him and never call us again. Stanley took his lead, and he met Mr. Klein. And do we know who Gene Klein is? Later changes his name to Gene Simmons. He's about four years older than Paul Stanley at the moment. (laughs) The first thing he does, Gene Simmons, notorious dick. He makes it clear to Paul, 
I do not see you as a musical equal. I will use you to advance my career as much as possible. And Paul is like, okay, man, we are both literally at rock bottom. It can only benefit each other to work together. <laughs> and for the first time in a while, Gene and Paul both get to play some live music. They go up to 111th Street, played some originals, some covers. Paul in particular remembers Mississippi Queen slapping extra hard. A little more cowbell, please. And Paul realized there was a click. Him and Gene had more chemistry than the entire Goy Boy Jewish band from before ever had. And that night, the first night Gene and Paul played together, Paul went home with a girl who introduced him to Pink Floyd. Imagine that second time you ever get laid and a girl plays for you Pink Floyd the first time ever. That's like having sex twice. <laughs> Gene and Paul went back to the record label that hooked them up. And who is it? Steve was the guy from the record label, and he sensed the spark. So now they got people looking out for additional band mem band members for them with some sort of talent. Finishing up No Place for Hiding, Baby, No Place to Run, part one. Paul's getting a little anxious again. He's just graduated, and everybody's at college. He's going, yeah, maybe I should go to college as well. So he did enroll in Bronx Community. <laughs> Rather than using the student loans to pay for his classes, he bought a second guitar. And he quickly learned from his first few weeks that college is a continuation of everything that sucks about school. Especially with a fucking rock star mentality, he saw college as a dead end. The only reason he was going is because Gene was saying, you are not my musical equal. So he's just thinking, I, mean, I still might need a fallback. And hanging out with Gene even just a couple more times, he sees the same situation. Poor single mother up in a crappy Bronx apartment <laughs> with literally nothing else. And he sees the chemistry they have is more real than any chemistry in a college classroom. They are stronger together than apart. Part two. Told you that was going to be a long-ass part. <laughs> this one as well. We got two of the band members together. Part two. Out on the street for a living. Out on the street for a living. During this same period when Paul is basically just dropping in and out of college, Gene was working as an assistant teacher, so he is making some real cash on the side. This is when Paul starts to drive a taxi around. One of the big things that he was able to learn in the taxi business, not how to drive, not socialization or customer service, he was obsessed with the radio all day, and he was dissecting the algorithm, seeing when the rock songs play, when they went to the morning drive. <laughs> and one of Paul's tricks was he would wanted to make as much money as possible in as little time so he could go home and practice his guitar, not so he could work more and make more money. Paul <laughs> was one of the first cabbies in New York ever. He would turn off the busy sign in his taxi so that more passengers would hop in at a time literally invented uber pool that's the idea he is always looking for workarounds and even with the time is money realization here it applies to music as well paul saw gene's work ethic is much more important than any sort of talent they're going to find on the street also because with talent comes trouble you'll see gene and paul very quickly they see themselves in a sort of a brotherhood Paul would scream up to Gene's room and his mom would say, Oh no, not in this neighborhood. You take that back to Manhattan. He knew his mom. 
Gene used to put ketchup in Paul's Coca-Cola. He was doing older brother pranks to him. Also, he would make him wait over an hour for band rehearsals. He was not very nice, but Paul was still insecure at the point. Like, oh, I'm not his musical equal. I can't tell him to be here on time. But Gene is literally just self-centered, and he is until the end of time. <laughs> like, when they're doing their reunion tour at the end, Gene is like, you know, I think it's time for me to take the career solo. 70-year-old rock stars are a thing. Now is the time. And while they're going out to diners putting ketchup and mustard in each other's beverages, Paul sees that Gene is really good with money as well. These are all things that you need to vet from a person before you get into a band with them. Because as we see, the further you get already, starting a band with someone is just as much as starting a business with them. The two heard back from the original record label that they were working with, and they had a guy called Steve Coronal was their first guitarist. Him and Stan were beefing off the bat. He came in with the hard work attitude. He had zero swagger to him. Like, the better... That's probably why. Just because uh, three more years in the business, Gene had a little more stink on him. Paul probably gets to the same level that he came in with. So now when Steve comes in, he's talking to Paul Stanley like you're an asshole. He's going, do you really think you're special, Paul? And Paul Stanley responded, just like his classroom response, yeah, I do think I'm special. I have an aura. <laughs> and Gene goes, yeah, well, he does. And I'm sure this is for the effect of the story, but this is the day that Gene gave him the nickname Star Child. His attitude always was, from the blowout hair in high school, if you walk around like your shit doesn't stink, other people are going to follow your lead and start smelling your shit too. <laughs> so you see Paul is growing a little bit of hair on his nuts. And now that they have a little three-piece band, they're able to have their first college gig. They go out to Staten Island, and they performed under the name Rainbow. Paul out there caught crabs for the first time. He said it was from a toilet seat, which has more believability back then. Everybody had a bush the size of the Australian bushfires. You're a fucking rock star, man. You don't have to tell people you got crabs from a toilet seat. You banged a dirty college girl. It's okay. After the gig, it went fairly well. Paul got a hold of a producer, Ron Johnson, from Middle Earth. And old Ron John over there made a little retainer deal with them. Like, uh, basically saying, uh, we're going to own your first record no matter what it is. And these guys are just looking for a record deal. That's like your first credit in the music industry. And luckily, Paul was still in touch with Matt, one of the old Jewish kids from elementary school, and he took the contract to Matt's dad, who was a lawyer, and was like, please read this for me. I'm an 18-year-old kid that knows nothing about contract law. And the dad was like, this is absolutely not in your favor. You are selling your soul to the record label. And Gene and Paul were like, eh, what soul? We don't have a soul. We're literally living like insects. <laughs> And they sign away their first record that is unmade so far to Electric Lady. Massive studio. <laughs> and also, tucked away in a super subprint, you need lemon juice for the wording to appear on the contract. <laughs> there was a catch written into it that they have to get rid of Steve. So already, Paul and Gene had to kick a guy out of the band within the first year of the band they're learning that music comes over friendship in this business 
And so now signed with Electric Lady, Paul and Jean are able to hang out in this studio. This is huge. Paul was always just like mulling around um, record stores and guitar shops because he felt at home there. And now he actually has a home. There you go. Somewhere to take refuge throughout the day. He finally found a home. And he saw Coke for the first time at this recording studio when there was a big band recording. (coughs) Says he didn't get involved, but isn't it probably better to have seen a drug at a young age rather than to see it in the middle of your 20s and have it be romanticized? Point being, if you see, like I saw cocaine since the age of 15 when kids would do lines and then... (laughs) punch out banisters, destroy pictures at people's house parties. House parties in my town turned into destruction derbies when they busted the coke out. So I feel like you could learn these lessons earlier, the earlier you're exposed. And there you go. Before Paul Stanley got on the road, he saw the habits of cocaine and how it took over people that he saw as legends were hunched over a table for this powder. But he will, he always kept it cool with the other bands in there that were going crazy and having parties. They would often ask Paul, you know, any women in the area? You got to start bringing some ladies by for us. And it felt like he was in the inner circle, just more into a family that he felt like he never had before. And he has access to the equipment. <laughs> he could start making some real music. He could throw a little fucking reverb on a guitar lick, see what it turns it into. That's exactly what I did. I joined the uh, radio my second year of college and spent every single waking moment between classes taking shelter in that radio station. So the year is now 1972. Paul is still driving his taxi throughout the day. 72 is when he had that little story about driving people to MSG for the first time and going, yeah, I'm going to sell that place out. I got a record deal. There's nothing stopping me now. And the summer of 72 is when Kiss Army, perk up, what was the first name of Kiss? Wicked Lester. An electric lady dropped a Wicked Lester album. Just needed to put some content out there. They gave the kids a credit, but Gene and Paul absolutely hated the music on it. They let the producers get their hands on it a little too much in post-editing. You know, they were laying heavy on the wah-wah pedals, doing all the nerdy DJ. (laughs) Welcome to KISS. From his first album, Paul was like, okay, these are just learning experiences. You're going to fail more than you succeed. He saw, I'm never letting a fucking record producer touch my album ever again. You have the talent. You got to go in and use the equipment. There's going to be higher levels of studio. You got to have some principle going in there. And so the album was actually scrapped. I wonder if it's out there. That'd be really cool if it leaked. They could probably make another million off that post-mortem platinum album. Stanley and Gene both ditched the band together. The drummer at the time was not someone that they could see themselves going around the world with. (laughs) They are back down to nothing. No band, no label, no gear. No problem for them. Gene and Paul basically just create their own studio. They rent an extra one-bedroom apartment apart from their two places, and they soundproof it themselves. They lined all the walls with, like, egg cartons and uh, old mattresses. It's a makeshift studio F-Shack crash pad. And in these earlier levels, they saw they do not have the musical flexibility 
to be a jam band. They know they're going to have to pick up some real talent for the drums or the guitar or just have the catchiest hooks and choruses of all time, which they basically do. I want to rock and roll all night and party every day as the definition of catchy. This is when their vision for the band solidifies. They're going, we're not going to be a jam band. Glitter and hair rock was on the rise in 74, but they still want it to be badass. They want to be a rock band. Hence the pyrotechnics and fire spitting. They started gravitating towards, maybe we should be a rock orchestra. I'm sure Pink Floyd influenced Paul's decision there. And so they tried to start writing in the orchestra form, where you're having like wind chimes and fucking pan flutes come into your rock song. And that's not going to be viable for heavy rock like Kiss. But what they did find that Paul is good for making chords, and Gene would sprinkle some riffs in here and there. And in this crappy makeshift studio, they wrote Black Diamond. You need to go watch the live, I don't know if it's Carson or some shit, Black Diamond performance. But it's like a eight-minute live rendition. Ace fucking destroys his guitar solo. And then Paul Stanley destroys his guitar at the end. They kick over the drum set. <laughs> it's fucking rock and roll. Also in this apartment, they discover they wrote 100,000 Years, Deuce. And they realized it's better when like we get our fingerprints all over each other's songs rather than just totally one, totally each other. They're stronger together, even in songwriting. Luckily, their vision is equally as large as one another's. Because imagine that you join a band with a guy who's like, well, maybe we could just play covers and go around clubs. Bitch, if you did not join this to be the biggest rock band in the world, I want you to quit right now. They both have worldwide visions. They start losing weight. Gene changes his name legally. For the second time, he started as Kaim White, if to bake some matzah. For most of his life was Gene Klein. Now, Gene Simmons. Stanley Eisen changes his name to what we know Paul Stanley. And even when he was changing, changing his name, he admitted, you know, I could always change it back. Maybe the band just has a five-year run and I'll change it back. <laughs> so he was a little reprehensive. Whereas if you read into Motley Crue, Nikki Six, he like moved away from his house, sold all of his earthly possessions, and renounced his name. He's like, I never want to know my old name. I'm Nikki Six now. So even Paul Stanley was a little bit more rational. Like, <laughs> I mean, Paul Stanley's not that bad, but imagine being the spaceman on your driver's license. So they're past all the rock orchestra, all the jam band talk, and they want their songs to rock. That is the main goal. You want to get the house moving, building some energy. I Want You, that's another great song. Listen to their live uh, performance in Detroit of I Want You. Paul Stanley goes back and forth. Holy shit, with 30,000 people. He does crowd work with 30,000 people. Ah! What? What? Yo! Imagine the energy being blasted at your face. They would go on stage, heroined out, needles sticking out of their arms. But when you have 30,000 people shouting back at you, they said the adrenaline was unmatched of anything in your life. I cannot wait to tell you about the biggest venue they did. Ooh, we're not even halfway there, ladies and gentlemen. Gene and Stan, at this level, are both acutely aware all of this could flop. Neither of them have made money yet. They lost their contract, so they're still working on getting a lead guitarist searching for big talent. 
And Gene did have a little bit of a lead. He said he once saw a kid in upstate New York who shredded harder than he's ever seen. And so they went snooping around the Catskill bar shows in search for this kid. Just a chupacabra up in the hills of New York that apparently has the quickest fingers ever. While they're doing, they have a little like road trip for the first time together, Paul and Gene. And Paul sees the extent of how Gene is obsessed and possessed by the pussy. <laughs> but you'll see Stanley catches pussyitis later on. He's just that three-year bump ahead of him. They noticed up in upstate New York how... At the time that they are normally going out in Manhattan is when people are retiring from their shows and going to sleep. Different world out there. They're going to learn when they start touring around the country. But they're able to save on hotel money by sleeping with chicks. I knew kids that would do this in college. They would go to other universities. Towson was really popular. You don't get a hotel room or anything. You go to a bar, sink or swim, baby. And if you do not hook up, you are sleeping on the street that night. (laughs) As a rock star mentality, Gene and Paul were doing it in upstate New York. And back in town, they meet a drummer outside of Electric Lady Studio. And they asked him, desperate at the time, on the spot, they asked him, are you willing to wear and dress and eat a live hamster or tour 300 days in a row? And the kid is like, he straight up said, I would do anything to make it. (laughs) Imagine how easy it'd be to blackmail this kid. It was Peter Chris on the sidewalk here. And their first impression is he's dedicated, but by God is this kid stupid as a bag of bricks. That night, they do go to one of Brook- one of Chris's Brooklyn shows, and he was absolutely wailing on the drums. So they were like, no matter what, this kid is going to be in our band. Gene and Paul also thought they were better than Chris's current band. So it was an easy switch. They recruited him. They saw him play drums like crazy, but what they didn't know until they got to a rehearsal was that he knew absolutely zero musical theory. He didn't, like, understand the difference. Not even musical theory. He didn't know what the difference between a verse and a bridge or a chorus. Every single time in rehearsals, they said Peter Chris had to start the song from the top. And this is not ideal. Band people know that your drummer is who you're supposed to fall back on. They're keeping the tempo for the entire show. The show is going to be 45 minutes instead of the hour everyone paid for if he's just tapping his foot a tiny bit quicker. It's the most important position, arguably. And so all the guys decide to perform for Capitol Records again to try to get a deal. And Capitol Records gave them two days to auditions to put the band together where they played Black Diamond 100,000 Years, all the originals they had at the time. And on top of that... Paul, rockstar mentality, he took a bucket and filled it with confetti. And towards the end of the show, there was an executive in the crowd who is obviously out of place at this show, at a Kiss show, where people look like insane clown posse juggalos in the audience. There was a guy in a suit, and so Paul took this bucket of confetti and dumped it on the guy in the suit. So everyone else is like, yeah, fuck the man. And the guy in the suit from Capitol Records is like, okay, he could have poured water or horse piss or demon blood on me. He just made a cute little joke. But that's what the people want to see. So it also showed the exec that he knows how to work a crowd. And Capitol Records gets behind the band. And they put a... Uh, flyer out there it's much higher level because now any guitar player that calls Capitol records knows their headline was guitar player wanted with flash and balls 
now with a better studio to work with the guys have more rules as well they're taking their band to another level just basic rock star rules they're making no bald heads no beards no excess weight and one day while they are rehearsing in their new studio a kid walks in with two different shoes on plugs his guitar into the amplifier without saying a word to anybody who's just staring at him at the moment like what do you think you're doing you're walking into a capitol hill record band's recording session and the two-shoed man starts playing an absolutely legendary lick and it was ace freely immediately without even asking for his name paul gene and chris start just jamming and realizing they got some chemistry with whoever this kid that just walked in is they invited Ace back for a second rehearsal, sign him into the band, and all of them hire a folk band manager. So here we are, 1973, and we have all the original members of KISS playing together. Paul Stanley pitched the name KISS with defense. He knew everyone thought it was stupid, but his rationale was that it has multiple meanings. It's just vague enough so when somebody asks you, oh, have you seen KISS? Have you heard of this new band KISS around town? You're just going to go, oh, Kiss, yeah, yeah, I've heard of them. It's just vague enough, and you don't want to sound cool like you don't know who Kiss is. <clears throat> it's not as big in the blind community, because they have to refer to the band as K.I. Thunderbolt Thunderbolt. A little blind humor. <laughs> they are rehearsing seven days a week. They know other bands are more social, but they're putting the work in, so when they do pop off, they have something a category of music for listeners to th sink their teeth into. Capitol Hill Records put together their first show. It was out on like Long Island in a 500-person venue, so everybody had really high hopes. They show up to a 10-person audience, and it was just a bad sign. Immediately when they got there with the truck that Paul bought with his own money, Ace refused to help carry amplifiers. He was like, with this kind of talent, you don't do any of that. And all the other band members stopped in their tracks and were like, look at all of us. We are all working. Why would you not help? Very stone-faced, Ace just stood there, looked at them, and pulled out his penis. And he said, look at it. Look at it. I am not carrying any amplifiers with this thing between my legs. <laughs> From the beginning, Ace Freely was smart enough. He knew to play his cards. He's the musical leg of the band to stand on, pun intended. If you have all the talent, you can compute minimal effort, as a psychologist would say. You know what you could get away with. The club was Coventry that they were playing, and they did two more nights, and it appears that Ace was boozing extremely heavily, even by the second two nights. So it became very evident he is the lazy person in the band, and he's going to be trouble all the drinking within the first weekend. And so 10-person audience the first night, Paul knew that this was mostly just going to be a learning experience and something he learned not to do being on the mic for the first time with a in a real club. He shouted out his two friends that were coming, Gino and Tony. Just like the creating an aura thing, if you want to be the big time, play to that. Even if there is 10 people in the audience, talk to them like it's 30,000 people. Are you guys ready to fucking rock tonight? Oh, Gino and Tony, thank you guys for showing up. I really appreciate that. What's going to make people want a rock show more? The introspective guys that they are knew that that was a terrible first showing for the band, and they went to see the New York Dolls together, who was the biggest name in New York at the time. And they learned what glam is. Glam. 
is the appearance, the likability factor. You gotta dazzle people, literally. If you're taken aback, then you're just gonna be that much more blown away by the music. Paul and Gene realized in hindsight, <laughs> like the first time after you bomb on stage, you go home and you just like stare at the wall. You fucking just reflect on every mal step you've taken in your entire life, and it lasts for weeks, years. <laughs> And Paul and Gene, after their first bomb, were going, what the fuck were we wearing up there? We looked like flamboyant firemen. And so Paul and Gene are going, we know how stupid we fucking looked. It's very hard to pull off glam, so they're going black glam. They're going to try to create their own lane. Paul saw leather pants at the store for a expensive $35 at the time. Because his newest mentality, Paul's always working on something. He's going... I taught myself how to play guitar, quite good if I do say so myself. I could definitely teach myself how a sewing machine works. So Paul's going to pet stores, he's getting like dog collars that he's turning into their bracelets and like shoulder spikes. He's going to sex shops picking up more S&M leather for their costumes. And he put on makeup for the first time. <laughs> his first go at it. Paul put a uh, red circle around his eye instead of the star, the black star that he does for Star Child. And he said, I look like the fucking Target dog. I look like the little rascal's dog. And then Paul remembers back in the day when Gene gave him that nickname Star Child for telling off Steve. And he was always fascinated by stars as a kid, so it fell perfectly into place with his makeup and his persona. Then Paul let all the other guys come up with their own personas so that they would feel comfortable on stage. Told you in the intro, Ace was always joking about being from another planet, so he's the spaceman. Peter, you know by now he's not an intellectual. Some <laughs> Gene was like, I think this fucking idiot just liked cats, and that's why he made his entire rock star persona based after cats. But Peter Chris told them, you know, I always felt like I had nine lives. So I'm going to be a cat man. They're like, okay, dude, just keep beating those drums. And then Gene, he knew he was the oldest in the band, probably the worst looking. And he knew the band needs a heel. You got a bunch of superheroes, the cat man, the star child. So he plays the demon to juxtapose Stan's persona as the frontman. They played Daisy, a club in Amityville, Long Island, for the first time in makeup. The first ever Kiss show in makeup. And they thought they look even more out of place being in makeup, being in the suburbs. And once again, nobody helped with the uh, Paul getting the equipment to the venue. It's also probably why Paul is the lead. He's putting the most legwork in. And what he did was get to the venue early, Daisies, and he answered the phone all day. Every single person that called in, whether they were just calling about the chicken happy hour special, he was going... Have you guys heard about this insane band Kiss that's going to be here tonight? They're only here for a couple nights. You need to check this out. Like, nobody else is going to give you that much hype. You got to hype your own shit up. So he went there early, and he also didn't want to fuck a fucking ten-person show out again. And for their f second stint of shows, first time, a solid 35 heads turn up. This time, rather than looking like circus freaks, the people in the audience realized... Okay, these guys are serious. There's a lot of work that went into their aesthetic, their glam alone. This show is probably going to go harder. The second night, they must have rocked hard because more people showed up. And this was the first paid gig for Kiss. Something in the magic of the costumes. And Paul, he learned from his first experience, his opening line this time, rather than, Hi, Mom and Dad! He went up there and went, 
his first line, they're coming out in their black makeup. Everybody's kind of scared. Maybe this is an actual murder group that is just posing with instruments. And Paul goes, What's going on, Long Island? Hi, how are you? I mean, is everyone out there? Hi! <laughs> He's learning proper crowd work. It's better than shouting out Joe Schmo. And so now that they're making a little bit of money, Paul and Gene call back up Electric Lady Records and try for a demo. And to go along with Black Diamond, Strutter, and Deuce, they now have Ace Frehley's biggest musical contribution probably throughout the entire life of Kiss, Cold Gin. So they are back on Electric Lady's radar. The band is working or at least trying to, Paul starts telling every audience that they go to, how we doing out there tonight? We have just gotten back from a long stretch on the road. Every single show they're doing, he's telling the audience they've been on the road. Every city is an ecosystem for music, so when they're telling New Yorkers that they've been on the road, it might their hoping word is going to spread. Around the local scene, they got into a beef with a local band called the Yardbirds. This was like their first band brawl first fist fight and they realized afterwards they made up with the yardbirds and were like this is about the music it's not about the attitude like motley crew would literally fight the audience they just want to be the most decadent the most wild the most crazy for the sake of crazy kiss learned after their first battle we're fighting a hard enough battle with the commercial side of the band let's not do it with black eyes and so Paul and Gene in their constant brotherly conversations were saying, I don't want to get stuck in this circuit. I can see how it happened to all of the other bands. We need to find a way to pretend like we're better than these bands. Like that saying, I've been on the road thing. You'll get pigeonholed. What the band does, I would say this is like one of their biggest risks, one of the biggest jump forwards that they take they decided to rent out a ballroom in new york it was 500 bucks at the time which is tons of money and you always got to take a risk when moving up a step and their plan is going to be to sell it out so they have ace sketch a logo for the band which is the notorious thunderbolt sign that you see half of that if you see a band flyer the logo is very important and the artistic ace was able to draw an eye-catching emblem then, of course, Gene and Paul's family, being Jewish, were giving them flack, saying, I, I don't like your band to start already, and now your emblem is the SS Nazi symbol? No. <laughs> so they paid for the ballroom, they got their emblem, and what Paul also did, this is friggin' genius for 1970, he was sending media kits to journalists. This is like, as a comedian, you send them a five-minute video reel, you send them a couple paragraph write-up and a fucking cool fact about yourself. Like, you do all the work for the media publication just so that the editor will upload your shit for you. They have all the fucking influence. <laughs> but he said they were able to get into a couple neighborhood newspapers advertising their ballroom show coming up. And so Ace was always more social than the rest of the band probably because he's drunk all the time he got one of his friends who was an av guy to set up the sound system for the show so he's lazy but he's got those social resources and likability to convince people to do some work for the band massive turnout for the guys who are usually putting on 50 person shows 400 people show up to their ballroom show at three dollars a ticket that's what 140% profit these guys made on their first ever show. 
And there's no uh, promoters or managers that you need to cut in. That's 100% turnaround for the four of them. Maybe not 100% because Paul surprised the rest of the band with a limo to show up to the venue. Gotta ride in in style. Especially if these guys are going to be in demonic makeup. <laughs> and then they all uh, clamor out of a Toyota Camry. It's not as good of a look. <laughs> they need like a, what are the, a hearse to drive them to their gigs. <laughs> That'd be cooler. Remember the WWE Undertaker entrance? They should wheel four coffins up to the stage and then they all freaking pop out of the coffins when smoke is rising. I think they need to hire a new pyrotechnic for the Kiss Forever tour over here. Even at their first theater show here, a self-produced theater show, a suit showed up. The guy talked to them in the green room after the show, too. He was like, I have a real vision for you guys. You're going to be a, a blue-collar band that New Jersey's going to love. And they were like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're too late. This is Kiss now. We just played 400 people. They all saw us as Kiss, and they're going to go tell everybody in New York City that this clown band exists. <laughs> Plus, the guys now know that they can throw these theater shows indefinitely on their own dime as long as they have enough capital up front so they do not need any suits anymore they're at a beautiful point 1973 they're getting ready for a second ballroom show and this time the guys start signing smaller bands so the people that months ago they were just in the clubs playing with <laughs> like i'm saying they needed to circumvent the system somehow that's how all the greats make it out this is a this is a planet of fucking thieves at the top. They started signing those bands they were playing with coming up as openers. Even though they all have the same music level, they played the business side better. And so even more people are showing up. He's seeing people from his high school there. And he's still in Paul Stanley. He's still in makeup and all this, so he can't go rub it in everyone's face yet. And he's going, I'm not going to unmask myself. I'm not going to let anybody know Paul Stanley is Star Child until we are bigger than the New York Dolls, who are the ruling band in New York at the moment. A city of 8 million. Go to Seattle, and nobody in Seattle is going to know who the New York Dolls are. So Paul is realizing how <laughs> massive you have to be to be a household name. And now, with their working formula, you can see how every single executive would want to get in on this. A self-sufficient band. They don't have to babysit around the world. This is like too good to come true for managers. And they meet Bill Acoin. Bill came up and said, unless you want to be the biggest band in the world, I do not want to even manage you guys. And they're like, oh, you're talking Kiss's language. He came at the band with the same energy they have. Not a stack of contracts. And so this was Bill Acoin's first band. Maybe the guy just wasn't jaded yet, but he had as big of a vision as Paul and Gene did in the Milk Crate studio. From the beginning, too, Bill Coyne was like, okay, here's, a, here's an idea. For two years, you guys exist as your personas, and then we unmask. And it wasn't, that's not exactly the timeline that they go along. I think it was like 83, 10 years from the beginning is the first time they go unmasked. Bill has the right idea. He knows what's going to make them money down the line. Gene and Paul were in. They were like, we see how rare it is that a manager with a similar vision comes by. They had to give uh, Peter and Ace a bit of an ultimatum to get him on board. They were like, what? We can't let a guy in a suit join Kiss. Who's going to book the venues? <laughs> they, they're not thinking about the business side of the band at all. And Paul is like, this is going to make my life easier. 
Paul told him, if in two weeks we don't get another recording artist deal, you guys can quit. And they're like, oh, two weeks? Fuck yeah. But of course that's not going to happen. That's how they got Billacoin and Peter and Ace to stay in the band. One of Billacoin's early suggestions also was that they needed a choreographer. He saw that the band was just as much a spectacle, a show, as it is a musical experience. And you see when you watch, oh my god, especially one of like the Kiss Forever, one of their tours within the past two decades, are heavily choreographed. But even on even in the old ones in the 70s when they're wearing like dog sweaters and all that crap, Paul, Ace, and Gene, they'll all line up at times and do their three-person windmills, power slides on their knees one at a time. It's a nice show. And you got Paul Stanley who was practicing that in the mirror since he was eight. And now with Bill Coyne, who left Buddha Records, and he eventually starts Emerald City Records, his own thing with the success with Kiss. As Bill promised, by the end of the year, he would have them produce a record. They were recording up at the 54th Street Bell Sound Station, and they recorded the 1973 album Kiss. They had to have someone in to do Chris's makeup for the cover album. Everybody else did their own, but this is a little dig at Chris Paul was taking again. This guy can't even, he doesn't know how mirrors work. He can't put his own makeup on. Along with a choreographer, now after their album release, they were able to hire a pyrotechnic for live shows. There are a couple good pages. He was like just interviewing crazy pyromaniac firework obsessed people. On the last day of 1973, December 31st, Kiss, the whole band, was invited on the Academy of Music show. So they see already, within their first few months of having an album out, they're getting media attention. It's only going to be a matter of time until they pop. This was perfect. Early 1970s, the media was looking for a demonic symbol to... (laughs) Their catchphrase was literally, rock and roll is the devil. It was the perfect time to blow up a rock band that is literally dressing like devils. It was too easy for the media to grab on. They played the media's hand perfect. In 1974, in one of their first TV appearances on one of those late night shows, Gene notoriously lit his hair on fire by doing one of his fire spitting things. And all that hairspray is pretty flammable. Also, Paul popped one of the buttons on his homemade leather pants. And so he had to like pin his guitar against his pubic bone as a belt for the rest of the set. Wardrobe malfunctions, things going wrong left and right. Also with the uh, the media landscape at the time I was just saying, this is the 1970s. There were no trans bathrooms. People were extremely scared of androgyny. It was even more punk rock, even more out there to be a skinny dude with long hair. <laughs> it like fucking scared country folk. And girls love that. Every girl's lesbian. You've heard this, every girl's lesbian to a fucking degree. It's true. It's 1974 still here. Kiss has their first album out, and they're fucking drowning in it. It's like a top 40 album already. Paul remembers (laughs) when he got his first record deal. Just read any other band autobiography. As soon as you get a record deal, you're going out every single night and telling girls, hey, I got a fucking record deal. You want to hear the name of my band? He said when they launched their first album in this period, Paul Stanley, first time, he's hooking up with multiple women a day. And he's going, what the fuck? What the fuck? I was just staring at my ceiling depressed a year ago, and now I'm waking up with two women in my bed. 
less than a year later you're seeing <laughs> even after the first album he hasn't even been on tour yet and he's starting to lose grasp of reality this is the fun part <laughs> living in new york he played he heard on wnew their song nothing to lose was played for the first time and he said that was another paradigm shift being able to hear himself on the radio in the first couple of years, they were really, really bad at press. One of my favorites, go watch this one, is the 1979 Ed Sullivan interview. It, I think it's one of the last ones with the four original members. They're like a fucking comedy troupe. Like, Ace cannot hold his tongue. He literally just drops dumbass one-liners. Paul usually guides the conversation. He does the entire interview. Gene is like... Dude, watch this 79 Sullivan interview. Gene is Ace's handler, like, <laughs> the whole time. He's the heel of the band, too, so he played, he, like, you could tell underneath it, he's a fucking happy guy, he's a rock star, but he acts like this mean devil the whole time. And then you got Peter Chris, who is genuinely stupid. Like, everything that comes out of his mouth, he doesn't know is funny because he doesn't know what he doesn't understand. It's amazing. They have They have the chemistry, like he was talking about, the entire time for this first year while they are not on tour they did have a national booking agent that was just keeping them on the road theater show here and there the guys were able to do the dick clark show and they recorded it over in la it airs six weeks later as they were in asbury park new jersey during a show and that kicked them up to another level now they being on dick clark and this blew them up to bigger acts too so it's 1974 still, and ZZ Top saw the Dick Clark interview, and they start opening for ZZ Top, Manfred Mann. Like I said, within a year, from absolutely nothing to opening for the biggest band at the time. This is like the golden era for the relationship between the four guys. They're, they're not down each other's throats yet as super-duper, super-duper-duper stars. Your ego gets too big at that point, and you don't even respect each other. But they're just driving around the country in a station wagon, the four of them in one car, staying in flea bag motels. No road crew. They're all doing their own makeup. It's just the ultimate road trip. They have all the stories about Chris peeing into friggin' bottles and being like, What? I thought that was part of a normal road trip. Ace being drunk during his leg of the drive, but made it even more fun. Crazy little fun stories. They had the chance to open up for Aerosmith. In hindsight now, people see, oh, were you a Kiss guy or an Aerosmith? At the time, Aerosmith was just a few steps above Kiss. They saw that they're just a bit behind them with the venues that they're doing, with the fans that they have and how big they are. J again, it just goes to show how quick Kiss blew up that they caught up to Aerosmith. In the station wagon days, also, Paul slept with a mobster's daughter, and he was—he had a gun pulled on him for the first time at a motel room. This is when the guys are still staying two to a hotel room at this point. And the guys are seeing each other more intimate than ever. Paul, from where our story takes place, he saw everybody's drug of choice. Paul found out pretty quick that his was sex. Like I said before, he knew from being around the cocaine from an early age, he smoked weed with older people and just liked the sociability of it. He knew that he was gonna... And his uh, therapist said that people fucking... That some people cope through relationships. So he's going, sex is going to be my thing. 
and at these uh, road gigs, people are throwing joints on stage. People are throwing Valium and unknown pills on stage as well, which Ace would literally just pick up and throw into his mouth during the show. But after the show, Gene, Paul, and Ace, all of them were getting heavy into drugs, and that made Paul feel even more alienated, makes him double down on the women. And already on the road trips, Ace's getting snorted up, getting valiumed up just to drive from one city to the next. When Ace is uh, under the influence, he's more annoying than funny. And he's under the influence most of the time. But they're still having fun. Peter Chris in the dressing room would put his dick on Ace whenever he wasn't paying attention on his shoulder. And like half the time, Ace would turn around, there would be a penis on his shoulder. So the way he started to get back at him was to kiss Peter Chris's penis. What are you going to call him, gay? These guys have had sex with more people than Attila the Hun. They're slinging so much that it surpasses homophobia. Bill Coyne was able to set up, it was called like the Kiss Contest Radio Hour. So they start doing morning radio wherever they go and just kissing as many women as possible. Again, they were on the cutting edge of the advertisement and commercial side. Still 1974, they're doing shows every other night, making the money while they can. They start touring around the South for the first time, and they find out that people love them on stage. People love Rock Down South. But the second they were walking onto the stage or the second they got off, people started calling them fags. And again, that it's going to play into the Bible-thumping thing. Who's going to cheer for a devil man when you're cheered for Jesus every night on your knees? With all the girls coming from the Kiss Contest radio hour, they had to hire a stage crew guy. Every venue they went to, they hired one of the security guards and was like, you're coming with us to the hotel tonight. We need someone. We need a a lady toll, someone who's like bringing fresh women in. They were referring to women as breeders, baby thieves. It's not pretty. You need to have your own vernacular when you are at that level of pull. Towards the end of 1974, their first album, Kiss, was leveling out at $60,000 in sales. It's nothing. You make most of your money on the road as a entertainer. But even worse, they're due for another album. You have one album and you went on a makeshift tour. You got to put some more content out there. And unfortunately, the band was telling a coin and all the record people, we're just not feeling inspired right now. And Paul Stanley snapped out of it after the tour. He was like... Yeah, anybody can create when they're inspired. That's the point of talent. You have to conjure art out of nothing. That's like people going, oh, I'm an actor. I could make myself cry. But when you're in front of a set of people who are being paid by a union and you have to cry within a five-minute window, that's talent. So Paul gets his first tattoo. He's looking for some sort of inspiration. And Paul's mom, after seeing his tattoo, told him, you're not allowed to be buried with us now. So his mom and dad are still extremely not supportive. That's honestly probably the the inspiration that Paul had from the beginning, too. Just a bunch of angst. So I'm sure he got a lot of that when he went back to living at home after being on tour with a rock band. Ace was not even looking to contribute to the new album. He is racing cars, crashing cars, not even coming close to realizing his full potential. Peter, out of some sort of weird habit resents most of what he's given he has no ability to be grateful and we got 1974 coming to a close 
and all of the bills that they were playing, like all the opening for ZZ Top and music festivals they were put on, they were moved up the bill from the three to the two spot. So like they're a feature now. They're not the headliner, but they're one step away. So beginning of 75, they're stepping it up a little bit. They're flying to gigs. And at the hotels, no longer motels, they're renting out a third room entirely, which they call the chicken coop. Just a holding pen for the chicks. Paul bought his first girlfriend back to New York to stay with his parents on their pullout couch. And they're making a little bit more money on this because they're moving up on the bills. And each band member is making... $60 a day. That's more than a blue-collar worker. Paul still didn't think it was enough for the sacrifices that he's made in his life so far, so he went to ask for a raise, but the manager himself was $250,000 in debt from financing the band. Obviously, the manager had this type of capital to front for the project, but the point is that everybody's sacrificing, so Paul realized, okay, I'm going to take a step back, I'm going to close my mouth, probably gonna work on this new album so maybe we can make some more money and maybe just maybe passing thought not smashing guitars after every single show would save a little bit of money as well tour all through 1974 patting the wallet making that 250k back and in 1975 they drop hotter than hell that was not enough they needed some sort of like a a rally cry just a one-hit wonder you can tour a flock of seagulls, Devo, for the rest of your life with a one-hit wonder. And so here in 75, this is when Paul wrote, I want rock and roll all night. And he mixed it. Those were Gene's lyrics. Paul wrote the music. This is their first real sing-along. Any giant touring band has a couple sing-alongs sprinkled throughout their set. And now going around playing live, I want to rock and roll all night. Paul's coxmanship is at unattainable levels. Few men ever make it to this level. He said he was soaking up what can't possibly last, which he later recognized as just his addictions. But he's pulling a lot. He wrote Come On and Love Me, which he would consider the most sexual song of all of Kiss's songs. Not Lick It Up, but you can see where the music comes from the life they were living. All the albums are pretty representatory of where they were at that time in their career. Again, towards the end of part two, he, in March of 1975, Dressed to Kill was released. That's a 28-minute album. All the songs under three minutes long, but it's content they're putting out there. I want to rock and roll all night on that one. And they have this big sing-along. It's now on the radio around the clock. They are becoming the household name. The band is about to be thrown into deep water to see if they can swim. The whole world wants to hear, I want to rock and roll all night live now. So they have to be able to provide a 90-minute spectacular for people who just want to hear one song. This is like when the comedian moves from feature to headliner. You're never going to be ready. You have to throw yourself off the cliff and see if you float at a certain point. 1975 and Kiss is headlining for Styx and Journey, as well as playing support for Black Sabbath. So they're getting a shred with some of the people at the highest level as well. Still in 1975, they released Kiss Alive. Great album. That's one of my favorites of theirs. And at this point in their career, I was just saying they're about to be thrown off the cliff, about to be t taken into the machine fully. It's like watching water simmer right before it boils. 
And so the boys who two years ago were playing to 10 people now are jumping over theaters. And on January 30th, 1976, KISS plays their first arena. It was the Hara Arena in Dayton, Ohio. There's got to be another paradigm shift, another sink or swim moment. They walked out to a stadium of 40,000 screaming voices. And at 24 years old, Paul fell back on one of his crowd worky lines that became one of his catchphrases. Comes out and says, How we doing Dayton, Ohio? It's going to be a crazy show tonight because I get off on you getting off. Just partying and sexuality throughout their show. It's live energy from beginning to end. So these four 24-year-olds step off of the stage for 40,000 people, realizing their life is never going to be the same. Paul doesn't go back to New York and buy a Lambo or invest in a cocaine farm in upstate New York. First thing he does with all of his arena money and boiling adrenaline is get a therapist. Just like he learned as a kid, the one thing that saved his life, when things are about to get crazy, the best thing you could do is plant your feet and try to stay grounded. Part three, I've been up, I've been down, I've been all around. So from here forward, like I mentioned in the beginning, this is all public knowledge from the band now. Band biographies are like a tell-all. That's why they're so special. And those first two years were really about the come-up. So all of this is documented knowledge. Of course, I'm going to keep it fun for you guys. In 1976, the band starts working on the album Destroyer. That's one of the most recognizable album covers that you're going to see. Kiss Alive, the live album, had just went platinum. And so (laughs) they're 25 years old and they have a platinum album. They're dicking off in the studio like never before. Studio time, very expensive. The record labels are getting mad at them. But this got Paul angry again. He's like, Look at what I've done. I've written hit songs. He's He has the rock star mentality now. I've written platinum hit songs, toured around the world, smashed more pussy than you could ever imagine. Get out of my face, executives. He's mad they're getting mad at him. And he said with that angst, he wrote Detroit Rock City. He would have never written it without it, he said. Like I've mentioned on the show before, you wonder if people lose the edge that got them to wherever they are when they're in their cushy mansion. Are you working to get to the mansion or are you working to fill a deeper void? (laughs) Same time in 76 and on the album Destroyer, Gene and Paul wrote together my favorite Kiss song, Shout It Out Loud. They are both living over in L.A. at this point. Also wrote I Want You over there. That's probably my second favorite song. So what are we doing? Destroyer is probably my favorite album. During the recording of Destroyer, the first real lesions of the band open up. Gene and Paul are doing a collective 80% of the work, which they could deal with. They basically did 75% of the work on the first few albums, but it's getting out of hand because Chris's drug addiction is making it so he cannot even keep a beat. And Ace's jewelry addiction was messing up their takes in the studio. They heard constant clanking of, like, golden bracelets over the record they were trying to make. He Obviously, he was refusing to take them off as well. And then, of course, Ace's alcohol abuse was out of hand. He wouldn't show up to recording sessions. His alcoholism is very well documented. Paul is just doubling down on his woman addiction. He's driving all over L.A. with topless women and topless cars. 
he had a one of the things that like bought him back in check was having a near death experience on a boat and again like when he was deaf in the woods as a kid and realized he could die being alone he had another one of these holy shit even rock stars can die moment their manager got them their first billboard on the sunset strip another reason that paul was probably driving girls around oh whoa what is that me whoa i'm on a billboard oh, i've never seen that before and they're making more money than ever now mostly because of the merchandising that's happening and paul starts to wonder is this cheap we're supposed to be a heavy rock band but we're out here slinging lunch boxes radios they had kiss motorcycles so there were some cool things Paul's justification, though, was the Beatles did it. They had all kinds of merchandise. What am I, better than the Beatles? Anybody could do this. And then you got, like, people with Misfits shirts on going, Kiss is too mainstream, man. Who the fuck cares? If you can live a life out playing a guitar and making millions of dollars, that's counterculture. That's fucking punk rock. Who are you to say the king of punk rock with your stupid fucking t-shirt on? Have some respect. Their manager, Bill, rented out a two-floor office. And they're like, what the fuck do you need two floors of an office for? The guy was marketing like crazy at the same time. He got them the Kiss Christmas story and the Kiss Scooby-Doo Spectacular, man. <laughs> Nobody really knows if he was just putting the rights to the band on a business card and handing it out to everybody or if these were calculated business deals. Later on, Bill Coyne gets busted with, like, underage boys and uh, tons of drugs, so I'm pretty sure this guy was just making as much money as possible. One day, walking around the streets of L.A., though, Paul recognized a kid who recognized the KISS logo uh, uh, sticker. It was just, like, a bar sticker on a fucking light bulb, and the guy's like, oh, shit, that's KISS! And Paul, out of makeup, was right behind him, like, hey, I'm doing something out here. Somebody noticed. He's got his rock star addict mentality, and this was not enough. So he's thinking, not enough for one kid in L.A. that's probably already into music to recognize Kiss. I want Kiss to have a cultural impact on society. Big vision. The lads start touring England, and so they had to win over the rest of Europe, which was a good new challenge because they already had America by the balls in 1975. Their tour life was shaken up in England. They have a hotel policy where there are no women after 10 p.m. And now that Paul can't get laid, he's edgy, and he starts uh, collecting things. Ace was collecting European knives and asked Paul to, like, smuggle them back to America with him. Ace has stupid addictions that are getting on his nerves. Just years of dumb requests, straws on the camel's back. But over there in England, without any ladies to hook up with, Paul went to a late-night guitar store and bought some sort of Gibson guitar that was, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it kicked off his guitar-buying addiction. So when you don't have the means for one addiction, like they say, you usually just trade addictions. This wasn't the first time they lost a tour manager. Within the first four years, they went through 20 tour managers. Shows you how insatiable the guys are. Fat Frankie was their favorite tour manager. The guy was like glue. He kept them all together, usually by just making them laugh at one another. When they get back to New York, Beth, which came out on Destroyer, was playing on the AM commutes. And so they're getting residuals every single time their songs are on the radio during the AM commute. That's the highest paid position 
in the radio algorithm like Paul learned about when driving taxis, the band members are now millionaires. And this really didn't mean much to Paul. Paul was really into the album sale records, going gold, going platinum, more than he cared about how much money he had. In fall of 76, they played their biggest stadium to date, which was 42,000 people at Angel Stadium. And then they went dark for a little bit to record the Rock and Roll Over album. At the time, they got platinum albums, they got gold albums. Paul's parents still hate him, <laughs> but his sister saw his his success. Remember his sister was like floating around in drug houses all around the East Village? She saw Paul get his act together and she got her act together. So Paul paid for her college with his millions of dollars. And for the first time, <laughs> I mean, Paul has just been going around the world for the past three weeks. He literally only needed to stop in home in New York for weekends at a time. He got his first apartment 26 years old millionaire finally has his own apartment for uh the rock and roll over album they're putting work in on they hired aerosmith's most recent album producer peter out here contributing zero to the new album paul is <laughs> starting to wonder he thinks he's getting dumber with all the drugs too which he didn't even think is possible the guy couldn't spell before now he doesn't even think peter knows how to rhyme or what a rhyme is ace is bloating up one of their original friggin' rules was shave your head, shave your beard, and shave the excess fat off. That is not sexy rock and roller. Ace is a blown-up shell of booze, Valium, and Coke. And so all of the guys, when you're at this level, you have uh, best-selling records, you're touring around the world. There are so many people in your ear pumping up your ego. And like Paul, he has his therapist, he has his feet on the ground. Ace and Chris were buying into it because everyone they meet, they're like, wow, you're a good guitar player. Hearing that every single day, multiple times a day, they're like, fuck Kiss. I'm bigger than Kiss. There's no single entity bigger than Kiss. And maybe that's why Ace Freely, New York Groove put out a single. They were really flirting with leaving the band because, oh, I'm a world-class guitar player. You got lucky when two hard-working Jews from New York threw you in their band, you alcoholic. Just try to stay on the rails. Paul had a really good analogy here, seeing Peter and Ace completely fall apart with great success. It's a shame. He said drugs and alcohol are like a motorcycle. It's cool until you lose control or get a bad batch. Drugs, the alcohol were making Peter aggressive, which is not okay. He snapped one of Paul's double neck collectible guitars. And this was like a final straw. These are million dollar collectibles of Paul's. They're his his family. He hangs up around his apartment. He's surrounded by them. The entire room went silent. The entire studio went silent. The guys behind the glass when he broke his guitar, like, what the fuck? He just did that? And Gene snapped on Peter for once. Even though it wasn't his guitar, he knew a line was crossed, and Gene said, You're an illiterate idiot who wouldn't have finished high school. Illiterate idiot. Love that. But Peter had the best comeback ever. He said, Yeah, I'm an illiterate idiot, and I'm in the same band as you. It's the smartest thing he ever said. It's again, just like when Ace whipped out his cock and said, I'm not carrying any fucking amplifiers. This was Peter whipping out his metaphorical mind penis. Saying, yeah, okay, I'm not a smart guy by your measurements of smart, but we are literally in the same tax bracket in the same job. And so uh, Paul noticed from here on out, Gene 
just started looking at the band as his vehicle. Like, even more of the, yeah, I think I'm an actor. I don't really think this bass guitar thing is for me. But that true, they only made it there in four years, so you can see why their egos are fucking out of whack. This is why the very quick blow-up of fame is such a dangerous thing for anybody. Look at Justin Bieber. This guy's posting naked babies on his Instagram. Also, at the time, Gene was catching a lot of flack for the group. Like, there was... You can go back and look on YouTube all the religious... Like, CNN was doing reports on how KISS is summoning Lucifer if you play their album backwards or something. But Gene would go around when they were doing Southern shows and there were Christians there holding up signs. He would be like, Praise the devil! And <laughs> shit to make the... He was just buying into it. It's not a bad move, though. He's uh, he knows that any press is good press, even if it's you're in the, even if you are in the media for newscasters trying to scare moms out of buying their kids records. The kids who listen to records are probably hearing the newscast from the next room and go, "Oh shit, the news doesn't like Kiss. I gotta check out Kiss." But Paul didn't like this. He's a pacifist. He's a lover, not a fighter. He always thought that rock and roll isn't fight the power. It's circumvent the system, which is exactly what KISS did. So they're getting the negative press, they're getting the positive press, and it is February 8th of 1977, viral in the news, the lads are able to sell out Madison Square Garden. It is exactly four and a half years since that day that Paul dropped those people off at Madison Square Garden and said, I'm going to sell this place out. And he did it in under half a decade. He was so anxious before the show, even though he had done stadiums before. People think like, oh my god, that guy's a rock star. He just walked out on stage and slays. The definition of courage is still being afraid and doing something anyway. He was fucking anxious as hell. It's his first time at his home stadium. And he said he had to take half a Valium before the show. Also said it was the most adrenaline he had ever felt. Between shows... (laughs) He just went to some Jewish New York deli on the Saturday day, I think it was, and he got some soup. And he's realizing, what the fuck am I doing? I'm a rock star, and I'm sitting here eating soup? He starts, like, having this existential crisis, but the fuck are you talking about, dude? Even rock stars eat soup. Calm down. You're playing Madison Square Garden tonight. But this got down to one of his deeper roots of anxiety was that even in New York, his hometown, he really doesn't have a social life. And he tried to talk with the guys that are on his level with Journey and Sticks, but he's like, the guys that are at my level just want to talk about the craft. Or they're drunk and fucked up out of their mind like the rest of his band. So he tells himself there will be a time and a place for that. I will have a retirement home one day where I'll have plenty of friends. Not a lot of people have the opportunity to be a rock star. Let's do that for now. At the same time, he's just getting a little bit older. 26, older. (laughs) He's realizing that being with women is good for his confidence, but it is not fulfilling. So Paul is realizing that even at the heights of rock stardom, selling out the biggest venue in New York City, you're still having a lot of personal internal issues. Later in 1977, the band is going to the Eastern Hemisphere. They launch a two-week tour in Japan. Paul said if he could do to himself what the Asian bathhouse ladies did, he would never leave his house. He's feeding into his addictions there. Also, visiting a bunch of guitar stores, Stan got his own line of guitars produced. You've heard of Gibson Les Paul? Paul Stanley. That's his fucking guitar. 
coming back from the two-week Japanese tour. There was some big like Gallup poll in LA about who the biggest band in the country is, and Kiss won. This was extremely controversial because the second, third, and fourth place was Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, and the Eagles. That's mainstream success for you. Maybe, just like the Oscars, just like any Grammys, awards show. There was probably some insider influence as to who won and what monetarily influenced that as a business that is absolutely massive for them. Back in New York, Paul starts frequenting the circuit that he started coming up in, just like all the bar shows. And he saw these young guys who were tearing it up. And he told Gene, there's this group that uh, I think we should really give a demo. Paul, with the eye for talent at this point, having ascended to the top, he saw this little band was Van Halen. And so Gene got them hooked up with, I think it was Electric Lady. Paying it forward, it's June of 1977. They're all back in New York. Paul writes Love Gun. So they all get ready for the Love Gun tour. And at this point, Peter Chris was not able to play the drums at all. So they had to get an extra guy to play on the road. And Ace just totally stopped showing up to the studio. So they were like, if we bring Ace on tour, he's he might just go missing. In July, they start the Love Gun tour. And they are still stepping it up another level. They got a private jet now with a couple pilots and a band manager. They start going to private airports. At some of the shows on the tour, Paul would point to a girl in the audience and he had they basically had a security guard of Paul. And he would just point to girls and he and they would go out and bring the girl back to the green room. And on this tour, still going to local local guitar shops, Paul's collection of guitars is over a million dollars. Definitely an addiction. But simultaneously they were able to rise the price of their concert tickets, just being more notable. More notable with that number one band in the country recommendation. The guys started to trash hotel rooms more. And when I say the guys, I really mean Ace and Peter. But uh, Paul said that the furthest he ever got was he threw one lamp on the ground. And then he just felt like shit after. Because he's like, oh, well, someone's going to have to clean this up. But we know Ace and Paul are Zen masters or just retards completely living in the moment. On that Ed Sullivan interview I was talking about... <laughs> You can't say this. It's a, it's self-incriminating. Ace would talk about how he his favorite thing was when a girl was leaving his hotel, he would go to the balcony with his bed and try to push his bed off the balcony and hit the girl while she was leaving. You gotta appreciate it, man. Guys like him are taking full advantage of being a rock star. But a guy like him could never write a book but that's the magic of a band turns over to 1978 here but they're still on the love gun tour uh, i think it was some east coast city that they were playing and andy warhol showed up to their show invited them to an after party and warhol told paul i want to paint you and i don't know why he said no probably homophobic or something i would be too <laughs> Paul says he regrets never going. Imagine you had your own war hall. Part of the reason they stopped the Love Gun tour in mid-78 was because Chris was too, Peter Chris was too much to handle. And the guys just couldn't even stand each other anymore. And they do not gig for over a year. And so Bill sees they're reaching the point of uh, bandhood where the guys are too big and they start to break up. And he pitches the movie. 
the four of them show up for their parts individually, completely mail it in, and nobody talks about the movie anymore. Except for Gene. He's like, you remember that? I, I think I'm an actor. I've always been an actor. Everyone in the band, especially Bill and the managers, are like, okay, shut the fuck up, Gene. And at this point, they had to end a tour early. That's a lot of lost money because one guy can't handle his shit. Paul, he's been around the music shops, all of the recording studios. He has access to some of the most talented people in the world who want to be in a band. He knows he could get rid of the band-aid that is Peter Chris and Ace Freely. But Paul knows <laughs> reaching the apex of superstardom did not solve any of his issues or his from-birth social anxiety. Giving this gift to anybody else will probably just exacerbate their mental illnesses. And he knows also he's looking to create a dynasty now. They're not just throwing out rock albums. They Even if they make better music, people are looking to see the original four on tour. It's not just about, like, it's a tough spot they're in. When a full year of not of them not playing together and they try to start booking a tour for 1980 and half of the people are signing up. And the final straw for Peter was when they were coming back, he sabotaged a live show. He like totally skipped a beat on one of the big choreographs they were about to do. And everyone was mad. Like that's an unspoken rule. Like when he snapped Paul Stanley's two neck guitar, you don't ever sabotage a live show that's the last fucking line so the band had a vote it's not cold or calculated it's just survival if you're gonna fuck with our live shows you're out of the fucking band what are you an enemy peter chris is out of kiss as soon as he left the band he married a second wife a playmate but they really didn't just throw him to the fucking curbs they got him a tutor a music tutor and we're like dude just get your shit straight and you'll be right back playing with us. We just don't want you throwing shows away because you're trash at music. And so he was able to read sheet music, but he was still smacked at the final rehearsal they gave him. So they figured we got to find someone new. Time for a new drummer. The whole first half of 1980 was a recording label fiasco where nobody knows who legally owned the band. This was like Bill of Coin. What Again, what are you doing with the rights to the name of the band? It was a big thing in their world. None of the fans noticed, but lawyers were suing each other over the rights for Kiss. And so <laughs> Paul Stanley is realizing the band is not all liquid cash, especially what the guys, their salaries being told they're going to have. They do not have access to all that money. So very smart. Paul starts trying to buy some equity up or lasting assets in the past three years, merchandise alone made over a hundred million dollars. The members only took three million of that each. But you're not you're not thirty years old and you have three million dollars. So intelligently, Stan, he was buying real estate around Central Park. It was a really cool part of the book, and he was seeing him being a Jew all around Central Park. It's all blue blood and old money. They do not allow Jews. And they definitely don't allow fucking rock stars. People look down on entertainers with old money. And so he's realizing the redlining of his home city, New York City. He's going, what the fuck are you talking about? I just spent my whole life making all of this money. And you're saying I literally cannot live where I want to? There's a lot of that shit I've heard in L.A. too. Like the district redlines neighborhoods for 
oil money. Like there's entire neighborhoods in LA, the hills of LA, that are just Saudi Arabian houses. It's fucking nuts. And the best property that Paul Stanley was able to get was up on 80th Street. It's by the MoMA, though, and a block from Central Park. He's got a super bachelor pad now. He'll call his manager and point to the girl on the cover of Penthouse Magazine, and by the end of the night, she'd be in his bed. He had an entire room, which is just like a shrine for his guitars, and one of the things he did, love this, (laughs) he put a mirror above his California king bed, just looking back down at him, you know, not for the sex or anything, from year one to year two, when he went from nothing to having threesomes every night, that mirror above his bed is supposed to remind him every time he wakes up, don't be a sourpuss today. You're a 28-year-old with $3 million in a rock band. <laughs> a household name. It's so weird. The fucking human condition. You can have all the notoriety, all the money, all the women, and still be a sad sack. <laughs> And unfortunately, like I just said, things got worse for him in his new awesome bachelor pad. He starts buying even more dumb stuff like collector lamps. Maybe he's uh, guilty about smashing that one lamp still in his. (laughs) And he has countless, countless infinity girlfriends. He had a story about going to a Rolex store and the guy was a dick to him and was like uh, made an anti-Semitic joke. Because still, this is a really good point. Still, to this point, nobody knows he is an international rock star. He is a household name, but he's a household name with a mask on. So literally nobody still knows what he looks like. He's a fucking ghost. One of the other things Paul hated about having all the money was he said he would go to guitar stores and the people would be like, oh my God, what do you want to play for free? What can I do for you? I'm at your service, sir. And he's mad, like... I was going to record stores when I was 18 to guitar stores and everybody ignored me because they knew I didn't have money. And that's when I needed to be able to fool around with the equipment. So he's getting the thing like, it's not that fun to be rich because you never know anymore whether people like you or they just like your money. That and he realized nobody gives a fuck about children. (laughs) Children that aren't theirs. And so it's late 1980. The band, after their year hiatus, still needs to do something to revive the career. And they unmask for the first time. And it was big enough for a European and Australian tour they were able to sell. But they still needed to find a drummer and get back in good standings in the U.S. They start looking through Blackbeat England drummer kids. But they find luck back here in Manhattan. They found Paul Caravello, who was a Brooklyn stove repairman. And the first thing he did was ask everyone for an autograph, which pissed Stan off. Because remember when uh, Ace Frehley came in for his guitar audition? He wore two different shoes, didn't even say a word to them, plugged in and started ripping it. That's what you want. You don't want someone with zero inclination for stardom to start on a world stage. And Paul is the man, Paul Caravello. He was tearing up the drums. They give him a cool rock star name, Eric Carr. As a welcome to Kiss, they bought him a silver Porsche, which immediately he asked to paint camouflage. (laughs) Everyone's like, I don't care what you do, but that's the dumbest idea to turn a Porsche, a luxury vehicle, into a circus mobile. (laughs) They also took him to a French denim store for an entirely new wardrobe. And they're like, if you're in Kiss, you are a first-class citizen. Act like it. And so Eric, I guess not too creatively and definitely didn't take into account what the former position that he is filling was, Eric becomes the fox. He uses Peter's boots 
who are still fitted for him. He is literally filling Peter Chris's shoes. When they were on tour in Genoa, Italy, the second night of the European tour, people tried to break into their hotel with bats. It was, again, one of these super religious groups. I'm wondering why the hell they have fucking American baseball bats in Italy. Being on tour again in Europe, um, having, like, some fresh blood around, Eric made it a revival of an experience. It wasn't being angry at each other in a station wagon. They were having fun again, treating Eric just like a little brother. In Australia, to get Eric totally accustomed to the high roller life, they would have some parties for the band that were female only. The ultimate ratio. (laughs) Kiss and women. Eric was still not accustomed to the rock star lifestyle. Even when they had their chicken coop, a room full of girls that wanted to hook up, Eric would go out and try to find the girl that he identified with. And they think Eric just doesn't feel like he's earned it or he's at that level. That's got to be tough. You're getting thrown into the peak. After that tour in 1981, Gene, Eric, and Stanley moved to Toronto for a brief bit to record a new album. Ace was bombed 24-7, so he's not even there to record a new one. In 1981, November, the album came out, and the record label absolutely hated it. The band was so ashamed that they did not even release a tour after, which is unheard of, someone at their level not touring after releasing an album. And this one, the 81 album, was called uh, Music for the Elder. It's got a weird-looking cover. You would never recognize it. (laughs) I tried to bury it from existence. And so after this bomb of a record... Guess they didn't learn the first time. It's not a year and a half until the band plays together again. And Stan, Paul Stanley, grew a beard in this time. One of their initial no-nos. Just laying low in a series of relations with multiple women. Swimsuit models, playboys, hustler ladies. And he starts giving away some of his collectible guitars. The reason we're thinking that he did this, he wrote about in the book a little bit, was his therapist told him... At the same time that he found a little five-step surgery to potentially fix his ear. So this definitely threw some hope back into his equation. Probably why one of his major addictions led up as well. Paul Stanley was in the hospital for a few weeks getting the ear surgery. And the way they did it, they took part of his rib cartilage out. And they carved a little cochlea, uh, one of those tiny ear bones, the one that vibrates the noise for his mitochondria ear, whatever it is. He had to wear a leather strap on his head for months after the surgery. Bought his doctor a fat Rolex as the sign of ultimate gratitude. Guy gave him back his hearing. And so now with his hearing back, he wants to try some new stuff. Paul Stanley had always liked going to the Broadway musicals. He starts taking some acting classes. So you got Gene Simmons who's going, yeah, I'm a Hollywood actor. I'm like a real action star I see myself as. And then you got Paul Stanley, who in hiding is taking action classes, acting classes, wanting nobody to know. That's what he might really be into. So things are looking up for Paul for the first time in a while, but down for Ace. Ace was saying he's potentially going to leave the band. So Paul Stanley would stay with him in Westchester for a few days at a time. Like, dude, <laughs> think about how far we've made it together already. A dozen years of being the top of the top. You can make it. You can make it further. And Paul really knows that it's not going to look good or be good on the wallet if half of the original members are not in KISS anymore. Paul up in Westchester saw that he's living. 
not constantly drunk, but in a constant state of blackout now. He's not even there. And so Bill Coyne, the their manager, was saying, just come do some promotion for our next album, and then you could do whatever the hell you want in life, Ace. You can bail. So they go to L.A., start making Creatures of the Night, their next album, and they needed a swing vote in the studio for this one because it's only Gene and Stan's creative ideas. They need a third vote, a tiebreaker, and they fly out Brian Adams and a couple other singer-songwriters to help with War Machine. And they start auditioning for someone to replace Ace. One of the ones that blew their mind was a 16-year-old kid. He was the daughter of David Bowie's seamstress. Kid's name was Saul Hudson, a.k.a. Slash. Imagine that. They fucking turned down Slash to be in Kiss. God damn. Also, Eddie Van Halen flew out to L.A. to play with them, potentially be in band because Van Halen was in turmoil at the time as well. All these bands fell apart and were risen back up. It's just harder to look at it from the future and see because we just see it as the finished product. And so Eddie was, uh, <laughs> after talking with Paul, they're like, yeah, you can't join, you can't go from Van Halen to Kiss. The world is going to hate you and so is Van Halen and your brother on the drums. But Eddie did give them a lead kid Vinny Cassano before they drop uh creatures in December of 82 <laughs> they have um, <clears throat> a track on it that has like a choir of a, a kid's chorus and so Gene trying to be the actor without doing any classes was signing acting agents children to be to sing on the album he's giving the little kids credits so that he can get acting credits and Paul Stanley is fucking pissed. He's like, this is very close to Peter Chris's selling out the band level. And Gene was going, Paul, you just want to be a rock star. I want so much more out of life. And obviously that pissed him off more than anything. Creatures drops. They tour with it. It does fairly bad in every single market. And Vinny gets to play on the uh, tour a little bit as well. The band hated he milked his guitar solos to be longer than they ever intended, which people would call the high point of the show. Not because it was the best point of the show, but it was because when everyone would leave to get high. And Paul Stanley is seeing it's literally going to take years to earn back the fans that they lost with the past few albums. Some negative press, but again, we know this helps the band in terms of sales. Paul Stanley was caught, and he was plastered all over the tabloids, hooking up with Donna Dixon. And this turned into not just some uh, sex scandal, but the tabloids were saying, this is the implosion of Kiss. They're losing members. The lead singer is hooking up all over town. But what do we know motivates Paul Stanley more than anything? Angst. And he's going... Nobody's going to tell me when my creation is over. When Kiss is over is when I say it's over. Put a little fire under his ass. Part 4, Under the Gun. In 1983, this is when they play their biggest venue. We do not even have places that can accommodate this many people in America. Only a third this size. The Marcana Stadium in Brazil. Kiss played for 180,000 people. You can't even, like, think about that many people in one place at a time. It doesn't make sense. It's too big of a number. They described it as it feels like you're in a tanker compared to the U.S. stadiums. And instead of security, they have National Guard there. The National Guard has to protect this. This is 20% of a million people. They could turn into a, a riot, obviously. They can ransack the entire city or take over the government with 180,000 people in one place. 
They said playing music for that many people, it was like electrified air. It's borderline hysteria. It's nuts. Just the amount of energy that that many people can put out. And so once again, it's 83 and the band unmasks for the Lick It Up album. They go to Portugal for their first makeup list show. And they felt that they needed to put a little bit of a more oomph into the way they played their instruments because the glam wasn't there. They need to make up for it. Vinny is still pushing his solos to epic lengths and they're flirting with new guitarists. Animal Eyes is the next album up. They're going to try to find a new guitarist for that one. Gene is mailing in the music and he's working on his acting. Paul is now designing the art too. He's doing absolutely everything for the album. And in 1984, when Animal Eyes is dropping, they get a new guitar player, Bruce, who is more so just filling roles. He's not trying to create an own character for himself on stage. They start selling 10,000 seaters again. They went from theaters, they went from arenas back down to theaters, but they're moving in the right direction at this time. But the recording labels that they were working with were just worrying on bringing up smaller bands. They didn't see any potential money to be made in Kiss anymore. Stan's not ready to give up. He keeps writing Asylum was the next album. They hire Van Halen stylist, which basically dress them up in drag. It's the 80s now. It's the hair culture. It's a new look. But here they did unmask and they did glam it up, hair, all that BS. And Paul Stanley hooked up with the Playboy of the Year at the Playboy Mansion party. Always taking his pull to new levels as well. And one of the biggest mistakes of his life, Paul said, though, it was time for his 15-year high school reunion, and he was thinking about the last 15 years shoving it in people's face. And he decided to go alone, so maybe he could hook up with Victoria, the girl that took him to his first live show, rather than going with the Playboy of the Year. But the whole thing was uncomfortable, disappointing, depressing, He passed on the old fling who was throwing herself at him. He did not feel good rubbing it in people's faces, and he never went to another reunion. Paul Stanley working hard on the albums, and Mr. Coyne, their manager, is stealing from Paul Stanley's New York warehouse. Guitars, collectibles, anything for Coke money. (laughs) So even their manager is unmanageable. At the same time, Paul's therapist is asking him, you got, uh, you know, sufficient savings in your retirement accounts? So even his therapist is is saying, you guys are kind of looking like you're on the downswing. It's not looking too good. At the same time, one of the band's accountants got in touch with everyone, and it turned out all of the guys owed millions of dollars to the IRS. And so they're basically all broke now, and Gene started seeing Dr. Hilson as well. He started seeing Paul Stanley's therapist, which he thanks. Gene thanks Paul Stanley. Oh, you saved my life. You got me in touch with someone. And they have a week-long heart-to-heart, which is overdue. Feels like it brought them back to their early 20s as brothers. So the two of them, they're working together again. In 1988, they put out the Crazy Nights European tour. That whole thing goes well. They're moving in the right direction again. And another uh, transcendent experience for Paul here. He's not too old for that. He went to see Phantom of the Opera with Billy Squire and some ladies. But he loved the singing. He loved the makeup and the deformity of the characters. And he realized he wants to try to do some Broadway. (laughs) So again, things start to seem good. But that's usually when you're about to hit another rock bottom. For Paul Stanley, their uh, therapist, Dr. Hilson, he divorced his wife, didn't pay alimony, 
and then became a fugitive. <laughs> so this was uh, Paul Stanley's one beacon of stability in a world of chaos, rock star stardom. And this guy turned into a fucking... He's not even solid. They often say therapists are often crazier than you are. And in the same year, Paul got into a limo accident. <laughs> and nobody from the band, nobody he knew came to see him in the hospital. He's in the dumps. When he recovers from the limo crash, he's on a plane back to New York and he has his first panic attack. And after that is when he wrote his famous lyric, It's not that you have to be here, it's that you have no place to go. He said he also turned 40 that year, which definitely added to the anxiety. And so Stan thinks New York isn't doing it for him. That's probably adding to the hustle and fast-paced mind he needs to slow down. He relocates to L.A. trying to get married. He dates Pam Bowden. At the same time, Eric Carr was diagnosed with an extremely rare heart cancer. So Gene and Paul fly out for his surgery. But in 1991, he had a stroke and died. So that's when Eric Singer came in to replace him as the drummer. In July, they go on another European tour. Paul is dating a woman, Pam, and he knocked her up, asked her to be his wife. Unfortunately, when he gets back, she had a uh, miscarriage, and so they never got married either. They're just working on homegrown projects throughout the 90s while grunge takes over. Paul Stanley actually employed his own band and started to go around the country with them. So he, even him, was like, I gotta make some fucking money. This isn't kiss or nothing. You, you gotta look out for yourself. Later 90s, one of their band managers, Jesse, pitched the Kistery, which was a best-selling coffee book. Um, and they also launched the Traveling Museum of Kiss memorabilia as well. So now they're getting crafty. But down the road, with these weird events brings back Kisteria. <laughs> I'm going to do this for the rest of the show. Kiss Hysteria. People were really into the band again and are buying tickets. Also, they got their wax sculptures in the Madame Tussauds museums, which had, puts Kiss in the forefront of people's minds. The first Kiss Con was in 1995 in Australia, and they would just do like question and answers, take pics with people. Some couples even got married there, saw it as a giant accomplishment. It had 25 stops in the USA, and MTV was following along, televising it, so that made it a massive event. You can see EDM rappers and artists doing this today. What would it be? Diddy Khan. <laughs> Genghis Khan. It's not very lucrative compared to a concert. Concerts, you can charge people based on where they're sitting. It's just general admission for those types of things. Not the money they're used to. And finally, late 90s, Stanley talks Gene into a reunion tour. He said, the Eagles did it. Why? Not? What do we have to lose? I believe Kiss is now in their final tour, they say. Final tour ending in... Or was it in March it ended? And either way, it's supposed to end in L.A., but I'm sure they'll tack on another fucking final tour. Part 5, our highway to heartbreak. So now with the Kiss Con, with Paul Stanley being in the tabloids... Madame Tussauds, you got your wax sculptures made. The boys are able to sell out Madison Square Garden again. Paul Stanley thought this was in the past. The guys check back in with Peter and Ace for a reunion tour, and they are definitely having trouble adjusting back to the upper echelon manners. Peter was blown away by a biscotti. It's been 16 years since he had been in anything other than a motel, so he's getting reacclimated to stardom. And with the reunion tour, it's like printing money. Ace and Peter have millions, their personalities balloon up again, and the old cracks that they saw in the beginning, the lesions in the band, start to pop up. 
Ace is nodding off and puking while putting on his makeup. In 1997, they went back to Japan. And Stanley now has a kid with Pam. They were able to give birth, and he has gotten into prayer. He's praying on a rock store world tour. The uh, Gene and Paul were like, we have zero tolerance for either of the guy's antics at this point. And during one show, Peter Chris refused to shave, which again was one of the initial rules. So they put someone else in his makeup to go on stage that night. They're like, you're not giving us ultimatum. You have zero power over this band. We will kick you to your shit apartment again. It's going to be worse this time knowing what you have to go back to. <laughs> so Ace was like, all right, I got to get a little crafty. He starts tucking pills into the sleeves of his stage outfit. Guy's out of control. The Psycho Circus record was a disaster. Peter and Ace, again, don't show up to record. This is Paul Stanley's 18th record he produced. So he basically has free range. He loves the studio. He knows the tools in and out. Same year, Paul Stanley got a rotator cuff surgery. All those windmills came in to bite you in the ass. In 1998, back on another reunion tour, and Pam left him. Halfway through the tour, Paul Stanley, for the first time, had to bail out of a tour. Just the divorce was too heavy for him. But perfect timing. He thinks it's another rock bottom. He just lost his wife and his kids. Stanley got cast as the Phantom of the Opera. He realized it was for stunt casting, which is basically just bring a star onto Hollywood to sell more tickets. But he was okay with it. He said that was like one of the most reassuring things in his life. Like you see people who have survivor's guilt, comedians or actors who think they just got lucky, often go to Broadway to prove themselves. Because Broadway, you got to be the triple threat. You got to know how to sing, dance, and act. Also, next year, he's still running with the positive energy. In 1999, they had the Kiss Super Bowl performance. Who do we have nowadays? Fucking Lady Gaga and Shakira. Just auto-tuned voices. These were guys that knew how to slam instruments. Oh my god. There you go. There's an 80,000 person crowd for you that they won't let a band play for. Why don't... Ugh. Imagine if they dropped an EDM artist at a Super Bowl halftime show. That would be the funding they have for that. The best strobe light show ever. <clears throat> I was just saying before. It's probably not Kiss's last show this year. Because their first farewell tour was in March of 2000, two decades ago. That tour apparently went terrible. During it, Ace forgot how to do his makeup. He also sucker-punched Tommy Thayer at one of the shows. These are 50-year-old men. In March 2001, they go back for a little Asian tour with the four original band members. That goes as planned. It looked a little bit like Peter and Chris were getting their shit back together. Back on the West Coast, Pam, in the divorce hearings, turned completely cold-hearted on Paul, taking all of his fucking money. Stan offered a five-year, all-expenses-paid mansion, and he would pay for the education of the kids. And Pam still said no. That was the initial offer, and she bought a lawyer with Paul Stanley's money to take more of Paul Stanley's money. She wound up settling on a 68,000-square-foot house in a gated community. In 2002, moving forward a bit, they closed the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics, another giant gig. And that's probably even more televised than the Super Bowl. Closing, like, it's a worldwide event. They're playing music for billions of people. And they said, also, when they played for a global audience, they had, like, Russian oligarchs and Saudi oil tycoons who were reaching out for them to play, like, 300-person shows for a million dollars each. 
So they got the money flowing again. They're using Eric and Tommy interchangeably to tour when Ace and Peter can't keep their shit together. And they are approaching the 30th year anniversary tour. Not a lot of bands make it 30 years. Part 6, Kiss Forever. In 2003, there was like zero live music selling, so Kiss and Aerosmith, if you remember, toured together. If you missed that one, that's got to suck. What was I, seven years old? And on this tour, they were going around with, uh, who's the, Joe Perry. He's like one of the best guitarists in the world. He's playing for Aerosmith, and Kiss was embarrassed. They're (laughs) dragging an alcoholic around the world as their guitarist, so they fucking fired him for good. And they also saw Gene and Paul, how hard Aerosmith still rocked. And they were like, yo, especially in these later years, people are really coming for a good level of music. We should be masters at our instruments by now. We shouldn't have just been snorting day in, day out. In 2005, Paul found a new girl, Erin, who he asked to marry him. And luckily, this one does not end in divorce. It ends in a few kids. He has the happy ending that most divorced men do not get. Gene was not inviting to his wedding because Gene always had this thing about marriage is an institution, man. I don't want to live in it. So Paul's like, okay, you're not coming to my wedding. I mean, that institutionalization is how Gene is now two times as rich as Paul is. That divorce didn't go over well. Why are you getting the fucking government involved in your sex life? But Gene actually did wind up marrying one of his girlfriends of 25 years in 2011. The final beef that Paul had with Gene was about trying to produce a Kiss cartoon ripoff. (laughs) Gene, he was still trying to sell, like, Kiss shows. I'll be the voice actor. I'll do anything. But along the end of the line here, he's not going to get mad. Paul is realizing it was their difference, their opposites that attract, that made them the key to their relationship over the years. And so Paul Stanley, a very dramatic life, is now living out a very dramatic free existence. And he said, I'm only ever going to tour with Tommy and Eric from now on. I'm not going through that headache. He went as far to say, the real imposters here, the real imposters are not the new members of a band. They are just filling a role. He said the real imposters were Ace and Peter on the reunion tour because all of their skill was gone. They were just like bullshit artists. They weren't artists. But nowadays you hear people say that the Kiss shows are notoriously better. (laughs) You you got a drummer up there that knows music theory. Getting towards the end of the book, they got to sell some tickets. They're going, our 2008-2009 European tours were the best thing ever. In 2009, they sold out Madison Square Garden again. In 2011, they did try to release a project album called Monster. Eh, Another flop. (laughs) They realized that Kiss is a touring band. They're not exactly there. They want to put on a show like we started that's going to rock the house down. And they're realizing in hindsight, both Gene and Paul, this probably would have been a much easier adventure without the dead weight. And now you see Paul, he will speak like at his kids' graduation ceremonies and PTA meetings. That old social anxiety that he had is now, is long gone. Having made it through the ringer, one of Paul's favorite lyrics is of Bob Dylan's, you may not know what you want, but you know what you need. And he said in his case, what he needed was just a certain amount of work to be put in. Nobody would have passed a half-deaf kid to be a rock star, just on principle. He was a realistic optimist. He saw what kind of work he had to put in, and he was not ready to settle. Fucking Paul Stanley, an American legend. It's that shoot-for-the-moon cliche, it's true. Because if not, you're gonna fall and land upon the stars. 
the star child. Stanley knew he wasn't crazy talented, but he evened that out with an astronomical vision for the band. And now he says the one of the coolest things about being at his level is that sometimes Jimmy Page will ask him to hang out. And he goes, I know, I could never touch Jimmy Page in the, in the expertise of guitar, but this is one of the perks of being at the highest level access to the coolest people. That's why you shouldn't aim to meet your heroes. What are you going to say, hi? You should aim to be someone that your hero wants to invite out to dinner. Aim for the stars, motherfucker. So Paul ends it saying, do not compromise. Don't give up. Don't give in. You know, if him or Gene would have, Kiss would not exist. A band whose music is solely about the joys of life and having a good time. I wish there were more of your kind out there, Paul Stanley. Truly a legend. Well-deserved. You are in the Nick's Nonfiction Hall of Fame. Viva the Kiss Army! Thank you guys for tuning in. Definitely one of my favorite books to read. Very inspiring. Something all of us could take away. Thank you for running long with me. <laughs> this was a fucking... I don't know how I haven't passed out yet. What do we got? <laughs> so next month in rough two weeks, ladies and germs. We got some easy listening for you guys. Continuing the theme of Americana. And this month, what do we have? The first pitch will be thrown. America's favorite pastime. We got the anatomy of baseball. And Anne anthology this book was an absolutely beautiful read i cannot wait to put the show together for you guys it is a group of authors some new york times bestsellers some scientists some comedians writing about baseball a different chapter for each topic the smell of the freshly cut dirt sliding and getting a nice yellow stain up your thighs taking a grounder to the face (laughs) i am going to be taking all of you back to the dugout alcoholic dads of Little League stealing gum from the kid who's at bat cup checks batter up motherfuckers it's gonna be a fun mid-month of April thank you guys one more time for making it through our first ever Nick's Nonfiction band world tour we're gonna be doing this every April from here on out and we got some fun easy listening just two weeks from now thank you guys it's really been a pleasure this was a fun book I'll see y'all soon peace